Good morning. Now we talked about this just a little while ago. Let's all do it together. Good morning. Good morning. Now, now we're good. Now we're good. I'm going to be in one spirit and one mind. Uh, I've been asked a question uh, having to do with uh, the prophet Daniel. There's a lot of uh, information uh, on the internet, I suppose, where uh, a lot of uh, scholars, uh, secular and biblical, uh, who teach that the book of Daniel is not a book of prophecy, but rather it's a book of history. Uh, this has been a debate that's gone on for a long time. But that's, uh, that, that's kind of a good thing in one way. Uh, the reason why they don't believe the book of Daniel is a prophecy is because of the book's accuracy. They've got so many prophecies in the book of Daniel. And they, I mean, <laughs> it looks like a book of history, to be honest with you. But the problem they run into is this. It, it's not a book of history. It's a book of prophecy. When I say a book of history, I mean Daniel recorded the events after they had taken place. Uh, a lot of people suppose that he wrote the book of Daniel between uh, 400 B.C. and the time our Lord was born into the world. But uh, the evidence attesting to the fact that Daniel wrote in the 6th century B.C. is, is just too overwhelming. Uh, honest scholars, whether atheist or biblical, honest scholars um, stagger uh, at the fact, uh, the accuracy of the book of Daniel, because uh, they know when the book was written. It's not really a secret at all, unless you're against it. So the question I've been posed with, uh, is it uh, a prophecy or is it uh, history? And uh, my point is simply to demonstrate that it is a book of prophecy. We'll be looking mostly at uh, chapter uh, 8. The greatest proof of all is, of course, our Lord's uh, reference to the book of Daniel. In Matthew 24, verse 15, he said, When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. There's the verification that Daniel was, in fact, the prophet. Jesus Christ said he was. And for those who believe Jesus, believe the Bible, that alone is enough to establish the fact that Daniel is a prophet. However, both secular history and biblical history, both, uh, attest to the fact that Daniel uh, lived in 6th century B.C. and that his, uh, his record uh, had to be one of prophecy. And uh, that's what makes people tremble is because it is so accurate, it's mind-blowing. Uh, I wish Chris was teaching this instead of me. Uh, I, I've heard him discuss the book of Daniel before, and uh, he's much more knowledgeable about prophecy than I am, but uh, I always enjoyed listening to his discussions on this subject. In a series of visions, uh, Daniel was told about four political world powers that would exist. This is uh, chapter seven through 12. We're primarily going to look at only three, but we'll mention the fourth uh, to keep it accurate. Babylon, I've kind of separated because Daniel was born uh, during the days of the Babylonian kings. But what he prophesied, he prophesied about the fall of Babylon, but then he, he, he prophesied about the rise 
of the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, and then finally the Roman Empire. And the details he gives is just staggering because he's covering, he's covering a period of over 400 years. And it's, it's mind-blowing, uh, the details that are given in these prophecies. Uh, it takes a lot, of, we can't study it in detail because there's way too much to study. We'll hit the high points only uh, as we proceed. The time of the vision is given in Daniel 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, who was the king of Babylon, a vision appeared to me. Now, according to the Nabonius Chronicle, Belshazzar was entrusted the army and the kingship in the year 556 B.C. That's the chronicle of the kings. His uh, date of reign was in 556 B.C. Now then, we keep in mind that uh, Daniel <coughs> prophesied in the third year of the reign. Therefore, Daniel prophesied in the year 553 B.C. Uh, and again, secular history testifies to the accuracy of this. Daniel was a very uh, prominent man uh, in the Babylonian Empire. He was very well known. He was a member uh, of the uh, court and uh, held a high rank. He, he made it to the history books. <clears throat> From 553 B.C. to 167 B.C., this is the area that Daniel is going to discuss in chapter 8. However, he goes over chapter 8. He'll go into uh, the days of the Roman kings, which commenced about 64 B.C., and then he'll go into the Church of Christ, which would come into being, and the battle that the Church of Christ would have to face when she came into existence, which harmonizes, of course, with the book of the Revelation. However, during this time, what we're going to be looking at is the Babylonian kingdom, it will go down, the Persian kingdom will rise, or if you prefer, the Medo-Persian kingdom will rise. Then the Grecian kingdom will rise, and then finally, and we'll just touch on it in this uh, chapter, the Roman kingdom will rise. He's talking about the rise and fall of, well, these, these aren't just nations, these are empires. I mean, you're talking about the, uh, most of the civilized world that was under the power of these people. Uh, he, he's predicting things that just too incredible to believe. Uh, nevertheless, these things did come to pass. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Eli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there, standing beside the river, was a ram, which had two horns. The two horns were high. One was higher than the other. And the higher one, is, it came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him. He, he's a brute. Nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. We're told what the prophecy is about. Uh, this ram, uh, he had two horns signifying the power that he possessed. The two horns were high. He lots of power. In verse 20, Daniel tells us, so we don't have to speculate, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Okay, 
What do the two horns represent? Those two nations. One was higher than the other. Of course, that's the, the Persian horn, the Persian kingdom. It became uh, much larger than the uh, Midian kingdom did. It's kind of weird because initially the, the, the kings of the Medes was, uh, was much more powerful than the kings of uh, Persia. Nevertheless, that's going to change. And the kings of the Persians are going to become much more powerful than the kings of the Medes. Ultimately, this kingdom is generally known in history as the Persian Empire. Because even though the Medes were once the prominent factor, that changed during the, the, the time of the prophecy. That would change. In the book of Daniel, for example, in the beginning, he talks about the Medes and the Persians. At the latter part of the book, he'll start talking about the Persians and the Medes. He switches it because the Persians become the dominant player. And this, this was more than people could bear. They couldn't believe this to be the case. You mean to say that in two decades, these insignificant little nations are going to overthrow the Babylonian kingdom? We've been drinking, guy. This can't come to pass. But it would. The higher one came up last. The Midian kingdom was the most prominent, as I said, but the higher one ultimately surpassed it, being the dominant player. All these things are being prophesied by Daniel, and of course they did come true, as he said they would. The Medes was the first, most prominent, and then of course the Persians were second and came, became more prominent. <clears throat> According to ancient historians Herodotus and Xenophon, Cyrus the Persian monarch pushed conquest westward to the Aegean Sea, northward into Cappadocia, Armenia, and southward to Egypt. Uh, they made this empire larger than it had ever been, larger than the Assyrian Empire, larger than the Babylonian Empire. Under the rule of the Persians, it would become the largest nation that ever existed up to that time. The ram, the, uh, the kingdom of the Persians, was pushing westward, northward, southward, so that no animal could withstand him. He just bowled them over, nor was there any that could deliver me from his hand. But he did according to his will, and he became great. The Persian Empire eventually extended from Ethiopia to India, controlling over 127 providences. This empire was huge. It became very, very prominent. In uh, Isaiah chapter 45, and this is very interesting to me, some 300 years, over 300 years before Daniel was born, Isaiah, the prophet, spoke of these days. And thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, who will become the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. He mentions him by name. Now remember, this is over 300 years before he's born, before Daniel's born. He's speaking about Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. This is why the Persians became so powerful, no doubt. God is guiding the Persians. He's holding them by the hand. He's leading them along the way like an adult would lead a child. He's guiding by the hand, and he's, he's leading them as he goes forth. 
He said, I'll give you the power to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you, Cyrus, and make the crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you, Cyrus, the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. Why? That you, Cyrus, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name some 300 years before you were even born, I am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, I am doing this. For Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. I am Jehovah, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not even known me. All these things would be done for Cyrus by the, the Lord God. Cyrus was given uh, this information when he came to power. And he was, he was so impressed with the fact that the God of Israel spoke of him over 300 years before he was even born, that he gave Israel a special consideration. He did a lot for Israel. He gave them money. He gave them strength. He gave them power. He sent them home from a Babylonian captivity. He helped them rebuild their city, rebuild their temple, all because he knew that they were the people of God. And he did everything in his power to help them. And God helped Cyrus, and he built the largest empire that's ever been known up to that point in history. The second prophecy goes like this. As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. Who is this male goat? Well, we go back to verse 21 again. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. We don't have to wonder anymore. We know who this is. <clears throat> he, he, he went across the surface of the whole earth. He's, he's going to occupy more land, more territory than the Persians did. And he did this without touching the ground. I think the point would be that he moved so fast in conquering the earth. He moved so fast in his process that it looked as though his feet never touched the ground. He is moving, and he's moving quickly. And then he says the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. There, there was a, you couldn't miss. It was a big horn that came out of his head from between his eyes. Well, there's got to be some significance to the horn. We go back to verse 21 again, the latter part of it. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Well, we know that the first king was Alexander the Great, according to 1 Maccabees uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the book of Maccabees, let me explain this very quickly. This is uh, a part of the Apocrypha. These are books that men used to claim were inspired of God. But when you read and study, critique these things in great detail, you can see that they were not inspired by God because there are some flaws in it and a book written by God would have no flaws. Nevertheless, these books, especially Maccabees, are a, a great history book, and you can learn a great deal from the book of Maccabees. Uh, I study them for that purpose, uh, well, regularly when I'm in the Old Testament. But uh, according to this book, uh, Alexander the Great 
was the first uh, king of Greece, and uh, of course history attests to that as well. Alexander the Great, he's called the Great, why? He's probably the greatest general that ever lived. I mean, he moved his army across the face of the earth, and he did it in 12 years. And he conquered everything but India. He tried to conquer India, but he couldn't take India. India is one of those kind of places you can't conquer. They had no national headquarters. They were, they were tr tribal by nature, and in order to defeat them, you had to defeat every single tribe. And of course, you can't do that. You defeat these tribes here, and then you move down south a little bit, and while you're trying to defeat those tribes, these tribes are building back up. You, you knock them down, they get back up. You knock them down. He couldn't get nowhere with India, and he finally gave up on it. But uh, up to India, up to their boundary, uh, he conquered the rest of the world. He was, uh, oh, even now, the military studies the tactics of Alexander because he was such a great uh, general. Then he caused the ram, that of course is the Medes and the Persians. He caused the ram that had, he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and he ran at him with furious power. He's taking on the, uh, the Persian kings. So it's a battle now between the Greeks and the Persians for control of the earth. According to historians, Alexander swept through Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Mesopotamia, <coughs> excuse me, and went all the way to India in just 12 years. 12 years, can you imagine that? Crossed the earth in 12 years, and you know, back then, they did it by foot or a horse. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't jump in their jeeps or any of that kind of stuff. He had an army of 30,000, Alexander, he defeated Darius III, who had 500,000 soldiers. Five to one odds, and Alexander defeated him uh, handily. He defeated the Persians. Richard's topical encyclopedia regarding Alexander said, his success was so extraordinary, his power was so mighty, that to many he must have seemed divinely inspired. I don't know, maybe he was. I don't know. That belongs to heaven. But he did the unusual. I saw him, that is the goat or the Greeks or Alexander, I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram. He broke his two horns. Remember, the horns signified power. He broke his power. He overcame them in 12 years. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground. He trampled over him. There was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. The Greeks now become the prominent power on earth. Therefore, in the third prophecy, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, I'm talking about Alexander now in particular, when he became strong, the large horn was broken. The horn symbolized who? Alexander. When he became strong, when he was at the zenith of his career, Alexander died. He died at a very tender age. History tells us that he was uh, about 33 years old. Uh, 
a lot of causes for his death. I think, my opinion, he uh, probably died from venereal diseases. He was uh, he was a great military tactician, but he was a very moral man. At the age of 33, uh, he died, and when he did, <clears throat> in place of it, uh, him, these four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. There was one big horn who died and now is being replaced by four. These four are Alexander's four sons. They weren't appointed to be kings. They were appointed as military leaders, but they took upon themselves the title of king after they received the power. Cassander controlled Macedonia. Ptolemy was over Egypt. Lysimachus dominated Asia Minor, and Seleucus ruled Syria. These are the four sons of Alexander. Now, they're not the military leaders he was. They weren't too bad, but they didn't come close to their daddy. <clears throat> Out of one of these four horns, there came a little horn. This little horn um, occupies a big place in the history of uh, Israel. Uh, the fourth prophecy, this uh, little horn grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Uh, the south would be Egypt, the east would be um, Persia, and then the glorious land would be uh, Israel, or Palestine, however you want to say it. Uh, this, this leader, who we know to be uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, he was over these three areas or territories, uh, and he hated the Jews uh, in the nth degree. He hated the Jews. There came out of one of them a wicked root, Antiochus, surnamed Epiphanes, son of Antiochus the king, who had been a hostage at Rome. He reigned in the 137th year of the kingdom of the Greek. This is from the uh, first Maccabees chapter one, verse 10. And of course, uh, other historians agree with this as well. Uh, Antiochus uh, became the most notable of all. He wasn't the son of uh, Alexander. As a matter of fact, he wasn't even a descendant of Alexander. How he got his position, I have no idea. Uh, by hook or crook, I reckon, because he wasn't supposed to have any kind of power at all but suddenly he appears from nowhere and he's got uh, a lot of power that he exercised and utilized, especially when it comes to the history of Israel. It grew up, this, uh, this horn, uh, Antiochus, it grew up to the host of, host of heaven. What's that a reference to? The host of heaven. You got the host, the moon, the stars, the sun. The host of heaven belongs to whom? It belongs to the God of heaven. He grew up to the host of heaven, and then he cast the host of heaven down, some of the host, some of the stars to the ground, and then he trampled them. More than likely, this is a reference to uh, Jerusalem, that he went to the powers that be, and he slammed those powers down to the ground, and Jerusalem became uh, a very tortured place because of the venom Antiochus had toward the Jewish people. His intention was to destroy the Jews, and he came about that close to doing it because of his contempt for these people. 
in the fourth prophecy, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts. Whether this be the high priest of Israel or whether it be the God of heaven, I cannot tell. And I don't think it really matters. Uh, he exalted him as over uh, either the people of God or God. And by him, he canceled the daily sacrifices that the Jews engaged in. They came to a halt. And the place of his sanctuary, God's sanctuary, that would be, of course, the temple. The place of his sanctuary, he cast it down. He destroyed it. He, uh, he had uh, so much contempt for the Jews that uh, in the most holy place, he uh, had erected a temple of Zeus. Uh, and then in the altar, he had uh, his people... Uh, sacrifice pigs on the altar in which sacrifices to God had been made for a good number of years. He, he was doing everything in his power to uh, diminish the Jewish people, uh, even to the point of killing some 40,000 Jews in a very short period of time uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he was evil, big time. He was so evil. Because of transgression, he goes on to say, because of sin, and this is obviously the sin of the Jews, because of their sins, an army was given over to Antiochus that gave him the power to oppose the daily sacrifices. God permitted Antiochus to do the things that he was doing. He permitted him to cast truth down to the ground to take over Jerusalem, Judea, and to uh, work towards their destruction. Why, why, why would God do such a thing? Because of sin. Because of sin, God permitted these things to happen. Israel was being punished, and it was a terrible thing to go through. He did all this, Daniel says, he, he, he thrust all this pain and misery on the Jewish people, and in the process, he prospered. You would think that a man that assaulted the holy people of God, you would think that God would, would strike back, but he didn't. He allowed Antiochus to prosper. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. Because of sin. Think about that now. Think about that. That's important. Because of the sins of the nation, God allowed these things to happen to his people. That's food for thought. The fifth prophecy and the final one that I want to mention. I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will their vision be concerning the daily sacrifices, the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. How long will these things go on? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. I want to think about those two prophecies for just a second. For 2,300 days, exactly what are we talking about? According to Albert Barnes, it, the easy thing to do this has something to do with the sanctuary being cleansed. After 
uh, Antiochus had abused the temple so many times throughout his career. Uh, there came a time when he was dead and gone, and it was uh, possible for the Jews to reestablish the temple. And when they did, they rededicated the temple. Now that happened on December 25th, 165 BC. They uh, cleaned it up, patched it up, and had a dedication ceremony. Now you begin at that point, since that's the ending point, then you go back 2,300 days, and you come to August 5th, 171 BC. What happened in 171 BC? Antiochus began his persecution of the Jewish people. Okay, up to that time he had been a little cordial with them, disinterested, I suppose. He had bigger fish to fry in Egypt and Persia, uh, but now at this time uh, he's focusing in on Judea, Jerusalem, and uh, he begins his persecuting activities, and will continue to do so until the day he was dead. Antiochus uh, was, of course, the person under consideration. And then in 167 B.C., uh, the Jews, they, they were tired of it. They had been punched around long enough. They were tired of it. They weren't going to take it anymore. And there was a fellow by the name of Mattathias Maccabeus, uh, old man. He had five sons, and uh, they were bad to the bone. They decided to have a revolt, and they did. They revolted against uh, Antiochus and his um, uh, minions, and it's referred to in history as the Maccabean Rebellion. Uh, this was the time when they went to war with uh, Antiochus, and the fight was on until the day that Antiochus uh, died, which would come in, uh, I don't know what month, but it came sometime in the year uh, 165. Uh, Daniel 8.25 says, through his cunning, Antiochus shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, the Lord of heaven, I believe. But he shall be broken without human means. He will, he will die, but not by the hands of men, okay? He's going to die a death but men aren't going to be the cause of his death. Uh, looking at the way he died, which was a terrible death, uh, it makes me think of a death experienced by Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12, verse 23. Uh, Antiochus was traveling uh, from Persia, headed towards uh, Egypt, and he heard that his armies had been defeated uh, by the Jews during the rebellion. So he decided that he's going to go to Jew, uh, Judah and he's going to make war with the Jews. Actually, he was going to eliminate him according to the Chronicles. Uh, he was going to just wipe him out from the earth. Well, on his way to Jerusalem for that very purpose, uh, he, he became sick. He started having stomach pains. He, he was hurting in his belly. He got to hurting very violently. His pain was so violent that he, on one point, he fell out of his uh, chariot. And when he fell out of the chariot, he, he injured himself. He broke some bones and some other things. The point is, uh, at, by that time, he couldn't travel any farther. So he had to stop. Well, while they were stopped and waiting for him to recuperate, 
uh, he broke out with boils all over his body. And these boils were, they were ugly, but they were also very, very, very painful. And stunk, oh, they stunk so bad, and people couldn't go into his tent, or people didn't want to go into his tent, and they wouldn't go into his tent unless he was awake and conscious, but otherwise they stay away from him because the stench was so bad. And then uh, after many days of suffering horrendously, uh, Antiochus died there in his bed in that tent before he could get to Jerusalem and die. When you study the death of Herod in uh, Acts 12, it's very similar to the death of uh, Antiochus. Antiochus was not going to die by human means, but maybe like Herod, he died by divine means. It might be that God took Antiochus out of the world, just like he would later do to Herod, another great enemy of his people. Uh, in December 25th, they rededicated the temple. Thereafter, there was an annual eight-day celebration known as the Feast of Dedication, which was observed by the Jews. We read about it in John chapter 10, 22. You don't read a whole lot about the Feast of Dedication, but this is when that practice uh, commenced. It was after they had uh, taken the temple back and gotten rid of Antiochus. Now, the, the, the prophecies... They're marvelous. They're absolutely marvelous. There's so many more prophecies in this chapter. It'll, it'll blow your mind if we go through and study them all. It's a great thing to look at prophecy. It's so amazing how, how they can predict what's going to happen so far into the future. And they hit it right on the top of the nail. Point after point after point after point comes to pass. And the Old Testament is full of these kinds of prophecies. The entire book of Daniel is full of these prophecies, not just of this particular event, but other events as well. And it's a magnificent thing. But I want you to think for just a moment about what the Lord said in Isaiah 45 to Cyrus, who would be ultimately one day the king of Persia. He said, I will give you the treasures of darkness. I will give you hidden riches of secret places. Why, Why would he do all this? for uh, Cyrus, that you may know that I, the Lord, who call you by your name, am the God of Israel. And for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. I have named you, though you have not known me. Why do the prophecies exist? So that we can know that God is the God of heaven. We can know that God exists. There's no way that Daniel, a mere man, could have predicted the things he predicted. That's why so many people can't stand the book of Daniel, because his prophecies are too perfect. That's why they call it a history book. He wrote this book after the fact, not before. And it's very disturbing to a lot of people, people who claim to be educated people, people who claim to be very knowledgeable. But they've seen the truth, they've seen the evidence, and they don't like the conclusion. And therefore, they try to write it off by saying it's a matter of history. No, it's not. And they know it's not. But God had these things written for me and you so that when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we can find comfort in the fact that God is God. And we belong to our Father who is in heaven. 
and in that we can find all the comfort we need. Whatever happens in this world means nothing because ultimately the best is yet to come. Regardless of what happens between Russia, the United States, between China and the United States, between Iran and the United States, regardless of what happens, ultimately, the best is yet to come. We can't lose because we've already won. Because God is our Father, and we know that God is who he claims to be because we've seen the evidence for ourselves. That's the value of prophecy, my friend. God wants us to trust him. If you are not a Christian, God gave you life so that you would choose him to be your father of your own volition. He gave us the ability to have our sins erased that we could start all over again as his children, spotless, without sin, in perfect harmony with our Father as Christians. Sometimes we miss the mark. No matter how hard we try to do right, sometimes we do wrong. Sometimes we do it intentionally. But a lot of times we do it because emotions get the best of us. But this we know, that if we have the strength to turn to God and ask him to forgive us again with a sincere heart, we know he will. So where do you stand today in relationship to God? Are you friend or foe?